1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 26. The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sokah in Judah and camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephesdamim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israel battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. If I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephathrite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day, Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out in its battle formation, shouting their battle cry, Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers how they were. While he was still speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, Do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I'm going to carry on our reading 
uh, from where Jessica left off. In other words, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we'll start at verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The troops told him about the offer, concluding, that is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men and became angry with him. Why did you come down here? He asked. Why did you leave those few sheep with... Who, who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What have I done now? protested David. It was just a question. Then he turned from those beside him to others in front of him and asked about the offer. The people gave him the same answer as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, so he had, he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, You can't go and fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I am not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his pouch, in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistines' camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. 
When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sharon road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it into Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. (coughs) Now, for many of us, the story of David and Goliath is, is one that we remember from being taught when we were in SOS or Sunday school. Um... A fairly simple story. But I believe there's things that this story can tell us this morning. And uh, I hope and pray that that will be true of us all, myself included. Now I've already said, I think many of us in the fellowship here have, for many different reasons, found much of 2023 hard. There have been many happy, joyful times, I know. But there have also been some very difficult times to deal with. During the year, the words of a hymn have kept on playing in my mind, and they stay playing to me even now. um, I'm conscious that uh, so many hymns are unfamiliar to folk today, but uh, this is one that's familiar, I think, to my generation at least. And uh, this is the first verse in the chorus. I do not know what lies ahead, the way I cannot see. Yet one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me. I know who holds the future, and he'll guide me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow, the new year, with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give to him my all. I think in some ways those words really echo what what, uh, David said when confronted with the the real problem of a man-mountain called Goliath in front of him. That he would trust the God of miracles for everything. Today is New Year's Eve. It's a day of celebration for some, for many, uh, for thought and reflection for others. It's a day or an evening of resolutions for the new year. I don't know about you, I, I'm honest enough, I think, to realise that very often I can't keep the resolutions I, I would make. So I tend not to make resolutions. But we might never expect to keep the resolutions that we say we would keep. We might hope to keep others. And very few we might manage to keep them. But resolutions 
are just that, aren't they? In many ways, they're just words. They might be good intentions. But I think this year, more than any other year, has made me think about the future and how we should view the future. Now, please don't think I have all the answers. Some of what I, I will say is based on sermons that our pastor has given us in the last few weeks. And any wisdom that's delivered today is totally and completely from God, our Father, and, and not my own. We may have to wait until we're in heaven to understand all that happens, all that has happened in 2023 and all that will happen in our futures. So what's our outlook for 2024? Well, we could take the view of the future that, that the Israelites took when Goliath challenged them. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 16, and Jessica read this earlier, Saul the king had no solution to this great big man in front of them. And every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. They did nothing about it. They couldn't work out what to do. They had Saul the king had no solution, no resolution, no positive outlook. Saul, unfortunately for the Israelites, was a man's man and not God's man. And he had very little faith in his God. Now this could be us. We could face 2024 in the same way, just, well, either we don't know what's happened and when, when tough times happen, we might just do nothing about it. It might be something that we regularly do. But this morning, with God's help, I want to show you from the story that we've just read, David and Goliath, <clears throat> how we can consider better answers to the question, what should we do in 2024? As, well, we'll just wait and see. And how we should face whatever 2024 might bring. I have three headings, and each heading is the name of one of the three main real characters in our story. Goliath, David, and God. So firstly then, Goliath. Let's recap the scene. Two very large armies, both ready for war. I'm not a military expert, and I don't know what their battle formations were, but I just imagine in my head that there they were standing with swords and shields and um, other weapons, staring with dislike and maybe hatred at each other. The Israelites were on one side of the valley, the uh, Philistines were on the other. Goliath comes up with a solution to the idea of a pitch battle. Now, a pitch battle would have resulted in many, many deaths. The two armies would have collided, many, many deaths, and, and many of what we would have called now life-changing injuries. But Goliath walks out of the Philistine battle line and suggests us a different way of resolving the combat, their combat. Single combat. He said, find someone to fight me. If he wins you will have been counted as winners. If I win, then you will be the losers 
and we will rule your land. Simple, perhaps. If I was in Goliath's position, maybe I would have thought it was a good idea. So who was Goliath? Well, first of all, he was an enemy of the Israelites. The Philistines were a, a, um, a people who had regularly fought um, with the Israelites for many, many years. I think there's an echo, and don't, I'm not saying this is the, these are the same people at all, but there's an echo between what we see in Israel and uh, the Palestinians in, in Gaza now, where there's been conflict going on and on and on for so many, many years. Excuse me. <coughs> they look at, I mean, if you think about what's happened in recent uh, weeks and months in uh, Gaza and Israel, the, the hatred that, that seems to be between the two countries is considerable. I'm so, sorry, I'm going to have to cough. <coughs> Goliath says, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men. Have him come down against me. If he wins the fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. There was such a conflict that both, were, both, both peoples were trying to rule the other. So Goliath was very much the enemy of the Israelites, very much the enemy of the army of Saul. Now, he was also a man-mountain. <coughs> I'm sorry, I've been given a cough and a cold this morning. <coughs> Goliath was a big, strong tree trunk of a man. We know that he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, I'm not an expert on gauging heights and that, but uh, I think he's probably coming up somewhere to the, the last line of that, um, maybe even higher, of that text. Three metres tall, almost, but not quite, thankfully for my pride, twice my height. Um, so I can't really imagine looking up at him and thinking I would ever possibly win any kind of physical combat. <clears throat> So he was pretty confident of, of victory because there's no record of the Israelites having any man anywhere near the same size. When we think about how tall he is and, and actually just how... I mean, his armour alone weighed 56 kilos. That's um, 28 two-litre bottles of Coke. Now, I had, to, I had to bring it down to that simple, simple measure because I used to work a long, long time ago when I was a student in Sainsbury's, and I was unfortunately asked to do quite a lot of shelf stacking. <clears throat> I don't think I could have carried anything like 28 two-litre bottles of Coke. I think they were in packs of four. Four was enough for me. That would have been, what, eight kilos? That's, that's just, yeah, too much for me to carry. Now, granted, he wasn't stacking his armour on a shelf, but he was wearing it. It's a lot of weight to carry. He was a big man. I think you could consider him the kind of main battle tank of, of the Philistine army. He probably didn't run into battle, I would suggest. So this is Goliath. What was King Saul and his army's reaction to Goliath's challenge? 
1 Samuel 17 verse 11 tells us. When Saul and all, his, all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. I don't think in human terms that that's at all an unusual or surprising reaction. This guy was big and nobody really wanted to take him on. So for 40 days, Goliath stomps out of the line, shouts his challenge, and the Israelites, well, at best they stand still, but probably they took a good healthy step back. What's the point of looking at this story today in in the context of 2024? Well, I think Goliath gives us two pictures of the world. First of all, I think it tells us a little of how non-believers, people who are not the people of God, how they view God's people. Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? Goliath says. He completely ignored God from the equation. And he later went to say, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight the other. He was in complete and utter defiance of God's people. He had no respect for the Israelites, no respect for their God. But I think a second picture here is that it shows how the people of God can react when challenged. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, they lost their courage and were terrified. Can that be us when we're presented with challenges? Can it be us when we are given difficulties? Do we just stick our heads in the sand? I'm reminded, and it may have been a story I've told people already, uh, of when I used to play rugby fairly badly at school. When I was in, let's get this right, seven, eight, nine, year 10, as it was, year, fourth year uh, secondary school. Um, we changed classes, so our forms were um, different to the first three years. And uh, a very large, and I can't really describe him as a Goliath of a man, but he was a pretty big chap, and he was called Aggie. And I was subsequently told that he was called Aggie, which short for aggravation. Now, you might think that Aggie was a, a brute of a man and a thug. He looked the part, I have to say. But I loved him because on the rugby pitch, all we did was give him the ball and he would run down towards the try line at the other end and in my head I have these imaginings of the other side, the kind of people flying through the air, just being knocked out of the way. It was um, a slaughter in, um, in rugby terms. Do we react in the same way? Not me to Aggie, but does hardship and difficulty come at us and we just run away. In our own strength, maybe that would be very justified. But as we'll see, as God's people, it's not justified. We don't have to fear Aggie or anyone like him. We're going to move on now to our second character in the stories, David. Now, I remember... 
uh, I remembered, I should say, I was reminded that uh, the FA Cup has a giant killing award for the most impressive killing, in other words, the most impressive defeat um, of uh, an opponent that's far higher in the leagues than your team. And I, as someone who comes from Ipswich, uh, I had to note with some glee that uh, one of the awards was given to Luton Town, who were non-league at the time in 2012-2013, versus a team that was in the Premiership at the time, uh, and they're an East Anglian rival of Ipswich called Norwich. And so I was very sad to see them in the list. Um, but giant killing is something that, that we hear about, don't we? Where a, a team from, say, a non-league like Luton can beat the power and might of a premiership team with all the financial backing that they have. I apologise for picking on Norwich. It wasn't their fault. Um, <clears throat> and we have that in our heads, giant killing. There's also the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, isn't there, where this giant is killed. And it's the, the underdog beating the... Uh, the superior force. Well, David is very much someone who looks like the underdog. He's not a man, a very young man, as it turns out. <clears throat> the world would pick to beat Goliath. Where do we find David? Well, in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 17, we find him, uh, the eighth son and a very junior member of the family. Jesse's oldest, three oldest sons followed Saul to war, and their names were, and so on. David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock. David, that we meet here, is what someone we might call a gopher, a go-between, an errand boy, a dog's body. Turns out he was also a food delivery operative, bringing cheese and food to the, to the soldiers, his brothers, and to, in fact, the quartermaster. But not the kind of person that you would think, first of all, would be a, an, um, an adequate opponent for this man-mountain Goliath. David's oldest brother even has a go at David. I have a brother, and I remember brother v. Verse, brother conversations. It happens. There's jealousies, there's arguments, it happens. <clears throat> and clearly David's family were no different. But David's brother has no respect for David either. What have you done now? So, really not looking good for David in his, in his prospects. The boxing presenters... There we are, you know, David versus Goliath. People would not be that interested in that combat, would they? They would be thinking, well, there's not going to be a fight here at all. The result is a foregone conclusion. King Saul has no respect for David either. David, he points out, is not a war veteran, and Goliath is, is someone who's very experienced in war. He's not someone you would expect would trouble Goliath at all. And Goliath himself, in verse 42, says, 
he, it says he despised him because he was just a youth. I'm going to tell you there's something more to David than what the world saw, than what perhaps we would have seen. When God chose David to be king, we learned in the, um, the story that was told the children that David became, later became king of Israel. But even before David met Goliath, God had chosen David. And in chapter 16, we find that God says, humans do not see what God sees, for humans see what is visible. David's a weed, Goliath is a man-mountain. But the Lord sees the heart. So God, when God looked at David, he didn't see a muscular man who was going to be able to beat Goliath with physical power. But he saw the heart of David and the fact that David trusted in God. So David shows something of what he's made of. He asks the question, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel, my country? And just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is clearly appalled that Goliath should be allowed to ridicule and mock the people of God. Who's going to do something about it? And when challenged, David says, well, if no one else will, then I will. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Did he trust in his own power? No. David trusted in his God. So this is how I think we have to view 2024. For some of us, it may already be a year that we're concerned about. For some of us, it may be a year that already contains difficulties and worries that, we, that are pressing on us, even before the year starts. Trust in God because he can deal with the Goliaths in our lives. So only a boy called David. There's a song that actually my youngest granddaughter was singing to me about, only a boy called David, and how he just took one stone to kill Goliath. Hopefully there is something of us in this story. We're not King Saul. We're not the Israelite army quivering in their boots. We can be something like David, can't we? Who's willing, despite the fact that we are, we are not powerful beings. We are willing to trust God and to rely on him in our lives. The the hymn that I, uh, I read out. So as I face tomorrow with its problems, tomorrow... 2024, with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles, give to him my all. That's certainly something David would have embraced, and it's something we should embrace as God's people. Finally, the last character, the last person in our story of note, greatest note of all, the Lord God. It might surprise you, and it surprised me, God doesn't even turn up in this story until verse 26, the end of Jessica's reading and the beginning of mine, when 
David actually refers to um, the living God and, and the uh, disgrace that is uh, brought on Israel. Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Really, that's the first time God is mentioned at all. That's half the story. It says something, I think, about the, the people of Israel at the time. God was not front and center in their lives. But God is actually there in the story in a big way. He's there because David is there and he gives testimony to uh, the fact that the Israelites are God's people. He also refers to God as being the rescue, the rescuer of him when he faced the bears and the lions. God is there because, as David said, it's his battle because God's people are there. Verse 45 to 47, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. You come at me with physical weapons. I have God. Today the Lord will hand over hand you over to me for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. So the problems that we face in 2024 and we will have problems some of them will be small some of them will be large. The battle is the Lord's and not ours. If we rely on our own strength as the Israelites we're thinking of, we would surely be defeated. We need to rely on, the, on God and his immense, powerful strength. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing he cannot do. So God is there, his battle, not David's. God is there. God shows his power by David winning a very, very unlikely battle. I don't know, a boy? Let's assume he's even shorter than me. I know it's difficult to imagine, but he's even shorter than me. Perhaps even a third of the height of this immense battle tank of a man. Goliath wasn't troubled by him, not at all frightened. But God uses the weak the apparent weakness of David, and he slays Goliath. So is there something of God in this story? Absolutely. The battle is the Lord's, and we need to grasp hold of that as his people. David knew that's how he faced Goliath. If we forget, we need to remind ourselves of the God of David. Who won the battle in this chapter? I went for years, certainly as a child, thinking it was David. David would have nothing of that. It was God, 100% God. Who saved me? Well, again, when I was younger, I would have said, well, at least I would have had well, a, a bit of a role in it. No. God saved me 100%. He changed my heart. 
He worked in my life. Jesus died for all of my sins. David had faith. I have faith. Where did it come from? God. Not something of my creation. Hebrews 11, a very uh, well-known chapter in the Bible that talks about faith and how uh, many people um, of the Old Testament showed that faith. It says, and what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Well, certainly mighty in battle. David, a little boy, became mighty in battle and put the whole Philistine army to flight. Hopefully you're getting the feeling here that we should not look at um, our lives and maybe our concerns for 2024 with any fear if we are God's people. As I said, this faith of ours comes from God. Ephesians talks of it. For you are saved by grace through faith. That was on the, the wall of the church uh, that I grew up in in Ipswich and I thought, well, okay, my faith, it, it saves me. Well, yes, it does. But my faith isn't from me. This is not from yourselves, Paul says. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time. I've noticed, I don't watch Match of the Day very much, I'm try and find the time to watch rugby, not football. But I do watch Match of the Day from time to time, and I look at the scores um, from time to time, especially if I want to see how Ipswich have done. And I notice now that when you see a score, you will see such and such a player has scored, and there is an assist from another player. We, as human beings, I don't think any of us are perfect enough that we don't think we contribute to our salvation, that we don't help God in his work, that we do things, and without us, God couldn't achieve these things. It's not true. I was humbled enough to see, uh, when I did door-to-door work, long, many, many years ago, <clears throat> When I was thinking about we need to share the gospel, we need to spread the word, we need to preach the gospel to people around us. Knocked on somebody's door. These people said, we were just, we can't explain why, but we, we just felt we needed to read God's word. Humbling to know that God was working in that household without any, anybody else being involved. Now, there is a war on in this world. It's a war between the broken world in which we live, the sinful, rebellious humanity of which we were a part, and we are still part of that if we're not one of God's people. But there is war between the broken world and God's people. 
And we're blessed by God in so many, many ways. How or why? Well, it's because we are on the victory side. There is a song that I remember singing again as a child and not really understanding it. On the victory side. With Christ within, the fight will win. Why? Because we're on the victory side. Why? Because Christ is with us and in us. So the battle is not ours. It's 100% the Lord's. And that is why we can have confidence when we look on into 2024, whatever our circumstances that they are now or into the future. If we are God's, he is with us 100%. God is here now. He's here in 2023. No need to sit on our hands and quiver because there's a Goliath in our path. We can have the attitude that David had. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and so on. We know as his people, we have experienced as his people many, many good things in our lives from God's hands. And we know that that will continue. But we should never, ever forget what he can do for us. When we pray to him, we should pray with the assurance of knowing that God will answer and act. So as we face tomorrow, as we face 2024, with its problems, large and small, and they will be there, we should re-remember something that David knew and in this story shows us he knew. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, a very familiar passage. We need to remind ourselves Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us, God, Jesus Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come. 2024 nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, th- I think it was Paul, our pastor, <clears throat> it may have been another preacher, talking about how we are hand in hand with God. Our own grasp on God is very weak. But God's grasp on us is unbreakable. So in 2024 and beyond, we need to be a boy or a girl in God's hands, trusting as David did in the living God, rather than being a man or woman trying to be dependent on our own strength. With Christ, through Christ, we have everything. Without Christ, like Goliath, we have nothing. We need to echo the words of a song that we're going to close our service with. And the last line of this is crucial. As we look at the words, I invite you to think about the words that we're singing. 
But all the way through, not I, but through Christ in me.